Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Adrian Davis and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how are you? I'm very well, thanks Ed. Glad to be back as I've been on a sabbatical. You all let me out to play in the fields for a bit. Um, <laughs> so it's nice to be back. And it's wonderful to have you back and uh, we were just talking offline about how you are currently the only member of the shot reverse shot team who is not it doesn't have some sort of limb injury because i uh, in addition to matt being savaged by a vicious dog several weeks ago and people can check the previous episodes for kind of the the, the state of that saga uh i boiled my own hand on friday That's oh, slight exaggeration <laughs> but um, i did i did spill some boiling water on it and uh have to stick my hand in a bowl full of ice for much of friday uh because uh it a it hurts to spill boiling water on your hand, but also it really hurts if you burn your fingertips and then have to be typing most of the day. Oh. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so it, there kind of wasn't really any way for me to avoid aggravating it. The thing is, it's just so specific. That's the mm. thing that unnerves me. I feel like there's a rule of three thing going on here, and something will happen to either one of my hands, or it'll be some kind of like Twilight Zone lesson for me to. Like, I'll be so paranoid about it it will inevitably end up happening in some mm. twisted twist of fate a twisty twist there you go mm. i speak words yeah. good um, <laughs> uh, i'm gonna call it now i'm gonna say that the twist is going to be you're going to wake up one day and you're going to be like goro from more combat and you'll have six hands six hands see that would be a turn up for the book set i'm totally all right with that like upgrade <laughs> me yeah so uh, we'll uh, go straight into the news for this week and i think you know, the, the the last time we were together, we were talking about how awards season is really kicked into gear with the Independent Spirit Awards, which were the nominees for which were announced a couple of weeks ago. And this week was a real study in contrasts between how boring and staid awards season often is and how <laughs> uh, off the rails it can get. And it started with the Golden Globes being announced, where we found out that... Andy Sandberg and Sandra Oh are going to be hosting, which is top-notch choice. Uh, good hosts with no drama uh, associated with them, um, apart from the dramas that they are in. And then, you know, the, the nominations themselves were announced, and they're all fairly dull, I would say. Like, you saw something like Green Book get nominated for a bunch of awards to the uh, to the acclaim of no one, <laughs> because no, no one seems to really care for that movie, but... It, it's kind of gentle and seems to be doing well. But there were some pleasant surprises. For example, Black Klansman being nominated for a bunch of awards and the the best picture being dominated by movies from African-American filmmakers because you had Black Panther and If Bill Street Could Talk and Black Klansman all being nominated, uh, which was really great. But, but for the most part, it, it just kind of reasserted that as exciting as a year can be for movies and i think there's been lots of really cool and exciting movies come out this year when it comes to the end of the year that excitement is is not necessarily borne out by the films that everyone ends up talking about as part of the awards conversation completely and i feel like i mean you and i have been talking uh with matt as we will go on to do our best of uh the year mm. 
And as we were talking about it and gathering our own lists, and I love compiling a list, me, it was difficult to actually remember just, I think particularly because this year has been a clusterfuck for so many different reasons, but Mm -hmm. trying to think back to like what came out in January, I mean, I gave you my list and you went, Phantom Thread isn't on here. And I thought Phantom Thread had come out last year, (laughs) which Mm. goes to show how much has happened that I think we're all aware that I'm a little bit in love with that film, to say the least. And for me Mm -hmm. to not even remember when it came out. And I think that comes through in things like Golden Globes and Oscar noms. It it is often films that have been released in the past couple of months. It's It's that kind of push after the summer to really get that real sort of sense of that's when you start to get prestige. I always think like autumn comes in and everyone starts to kind of stare into the middle distance and bite their lip and there's no more kind of like high high colours necessarily. It is all very uh, muted and considered. And don't get me wrong, I, lo- I love a bit of that, like, you know, dramatically. But looking at the Golden Globes nominations, for example, there's really not a lot that has been beyond, I don't know, released since before September. Um, and I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that we, I think the thing that I have to keep bearing in mind is that a lot of these nominations aren't considered. Like these are nominations made by people who are working in the industry and it's not mm. like they get a cons- like a specific amount of dedicated time to sit there and watch screeners or to really think about the year they'll often just look at like maybe a long list and tick off people that they know or things that they genuinely liked. And I don't want to come across as if like people don't care. They do care. Obviously they do. This is their living. This is the business. It's everything. But often it's such a rush just to get things collected in time and to set deadlines that I think a lot of the time it will just be, we we do just fall on what we've seen most recently. And I think that's actually quite human. Mm. There's not some great big invisible om- omnipotent sort of force making this happen. It's a, it's an industry. It's an it's an it's a peer to peer network. <laughs> <laughs> and and there's also the added factor with the Golden Globes and the the Hollywood Foreign Press Agency, which is association agency or association. I think it's association. Association, um, which is the. The Golden Globes are often picked less because, oh, this was the best movie we saw than it is, oh, this movie features people we would quite like to spend an evening hanging out with. That has always been part of their makeup as they are a bit more of a hobnobby sort of event than necessarily one that recognises the best and the brightest, which is why it's I don't get a kind of like het up about them in the same way that... Yeah. I sometimes will do with the Oscars because like the Oscars perhaps has a bit more of an air of prestige to them. Whereas this one, you kind of think, ah, the fact that all the nominees are men is not a great look, but it also makes you think, well, but you know, like it's the golden gloves. Like it's not really something worth getting too, uh, too worked up about. Having said that, I mean, putting Peter Farrelly and Adam McKay in over, I don't know, Marianne Heller, is probably uh, a mistake. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, or over even Ryan Coogler for Black Panther, you know. It, 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 there, are, there are people that could be nominated for that award who arguably 
did far more impressive and uh, ambitious work. You know, yeah. I, I rewatched the first half an hour of Black Panther just the other day because it's uh, on Netflix. And I thought, you know what, I haven't watched that in quite a while. And I want to maybe, it's one of those ones that was very high in my list towards the start of the year and has been bumped down just as I've seen more movies. I kind of think, I remember really loving that movie. I should probably rewatch it and see if that shifts things around. Mm. And uh, I did kind of walk away thinking, yeah, that was uh, honestly quite an amazing work of world building and just the pacing of it. Because that first half an hour, it really just takes you up to the waterfall fight with M'Baku. And you think that is such a a rush to get you to that point when you suddenly realise, oh, wow, like a huge chunk of the movie has actually passed but it really feels as if this whole thing was like 10 minutes of, of screen time. And that's yeah. really impressive when you think, oh, they have to introduce you to Wakanda, which no one has seen up until this point, And also basically introduce you to an entire group of subcultures within that country and all of these characters that you've not met before. And it, it like Kugler does such a great job of balancing all of those aspects. Completely. And I mean, just looking at the best motion picture for drama nominations there. That's the other thing I kind of like about the Golden Globes. Like there's a little bit more recognition of genre and musical or comedy in particular, I think is a really good step forward because you do actually get a bit more recognition for a different kind of acting or performance than Mm. solely just drama. And I think the Golden Globes manages to, if not avoid, then at least balance out the kind of mistake that the Oscars (laughs) do. Like there's not, there's not such a thing as Golden Globes bait, right? Like there's, there's a bit, I think I think there's a better recognition of different things. But looking at best motion picture drama, for example, what's quite refreshing is that four of them have non-white leads. Mm, yeah. And then musical or comedy, you know, veering veering um, a bit away. The thing is, it's 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 weird that for me that the favourite um, has popped into musical or comedy uh, picture, but there's absolutely nothing for Olivia Coleman. Um, mm. and looking at like the LA Times and like various other critics awards that are coming in like she is getting it like time and time again I haven't seen the favorite yet I'm absolutely desperate to I'm really interested mm. to see um, I've had a patchy sort of appreciation of uh, old Yorgos but this sounds great and a pretty cool direction for him and I wonder whether in you know no one can get everything all the time but I wonder if the Golden Globes are kind of it's weird how they're kind of expanding and, and going into the future in one way, or not even the future, just being bang up to the present, do you know what I mean, in one mm. way, and then in another, like you say, like, how much of this is surprising? How much of this is really, there's there's not a lot of excitement for me in this. I mean, I look at Claire Foy for First Man, I haven't seen First Man yet, and I think we registered my complete tepid indifference to it in the um preview episode but even just looking at the trailer Claire Foy's performance in that just reminds me of uh the uh as yet unmatched uh Natalie Walker yeah I was gonna mention that. <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, these auditions on her Twitter feed which are absolutely priceless uh one of which being audition for a woman who is waiting patiently for her husband to make his national like human history <laughs> mm-hmm. on tv as everyone's giving her appreciative shoulder pats and she's looking intently to the tv and i was like that's pretty much a match for match shot <laughs> for first, mm. the trailer for first man with claire foy you know that's not too exciting it's nice to see someone like elsie fisher mm-hmm. 
you know, she's she's a young and but I'm amazed that Isle of Dogs is still in the running. That feels like years ago, not this year. Um, mm. So no, I'm there's been a lot going on this year, Ed, and I'm confused and tired. <laughs> yeah, and I mean that kind of continued on this week, where if we had been recording this episode like two days ago, I think our story about the Oscars, or three or four days ago, our story about the Oscars would be wildly different <laughs> um, to. Uh, the one that we're about to tell, which is the, uh, yeah. you know, like there was there was an article earlier in the week, which was like, no one wants to be the Oscars host because it's kind of a, it's such a hard job. And then they said, oh, we're going to pick Kevin Hart. And everyone was like, oh, okay, fine. And then people started, you know, kind of bringing up some of his old tweets, uh, which were pretty, there was some very kind of homophobic stuff in there, stuff that was meant to be jokes but like even taken even taken in context of him his work as a comedian came off as like really really hateful in a way that uh was kind of indefensible and then he and his team didn't exactly handle the fallout from that very well by not even really issuing an apology or even a non-apology apology which is usually enough to kind of get you through these sort of these sort of news cycles, because there is a way to just basically say, oh, you know, I wrote those things years ago. I don't believe those sort of things. You know, they were attempts as jokes. I realise that, you know, they read differently now and they may not have been all that funny. Like there are there are PR ways of getting through this. You know, it's, yeah. it's not like when Brett Ratner was fired from directing the Oscars because he literally said something utterly repellent that week. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, no, th- this is stuff from like 10 years ago. Like there are ways for you to, to kind of work around this if you're willing to. And Kevin Hart just completely wasn't willing to kind of take the L on it. And and, and instead was like, you know, I'm I'm pulling out. So like the last couple of days really have been people making jokes about who should be hosting the Oscars and... But but also like people discussing you know the the nature of uh, I guess of cancelling culture and things like that you know and which which kind of reached its apex last night on SNL where Michael Che kind of talked about this and the notion that you know if basically saying like you know if Kevin Hart's jokes aren't clean enough for him to host the Oscars then there's no black comedian who could ever host the Oscars or something like that and it. it like you and I, I think, have talked about <laughs> the the many problems with Michael Che on this show in the past before. But it, it certainly feels as if this week has really derailed what seemed like it was going to be a fairly kind of tepid and boring path for the Oscars uh, this year, uh, even considering how fraught like the last couple of years have been. Like This, this seems particularly fraught for them. Yeah, and I think Michael Che is just probably still a little bit sore about how poorly he and Colin Jost hosted the Emmys, right? Like, mm. And I think this idea of being like clean and outrage culture and cancelling culture, particularly in this instance with Kevin Hart, right? Like you were saying, he had a brilliant chance to be able to apologise and he didn't really Mm. and you know this whole i'm continuing to evolve it's great if you continue to evolve but you should at least like apologize and make it clear that you understand why that's not okay now rather than that you've just been caught using a word publicly that it's it's a i'm i'm annoyed that i got caught not (laughs) i understand how that make people feel dehumanized yeah because there's a very it's very different causing offense than it is actually uh dehumanizing someone and i 
can't believe we're still having uh, this conversation. And yeah, the idea of people being cancelled. I don't know. The thing is, is that Kevin Hart isn't going to be cancelled. Kevin Hart is going to go on and he's going to carry on making films and Scarlett Johansson will play him one day and he'll be fine. In -hmm. terms of Michael Che saying there's no black comedian who's going to be all right to host the Oscars, um, I say we just get Kevin Hart's co-star Tiffany Haddish in. She's Mm. great. Uh, I don't think she's managed to um, say anything particularly homophobic. I think she goes from strength to strength, is immensely charismatic, and I would love to see her host. Um, Or even Michelle Wolf. She, Mm. you know, I mean, the problem is probably hosting Michelle Wolf. The Oscars will then, in terms of cancelling culture, just cancel hosting altogether because that seems to be what happens. She drops the mic (laughs) so hard, it crashes through the floor. Mm-hmm. into the molten core of the earth and then no one else can come up and stand to the mic which to be honest is that the worst thing do we need uh, i mean what's the actual function of a host you you want to keep mm. things to time. if you're a master of ceremonies right you want to keep things to time make everyone feel welcome that's a key point actually in hosting possibly tell some insider knowing sort of jokes which again is yeah. why like you look to Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and how brilliant their hosting run was because mm. they managed to skewer everything in a way that brought everyone together and also made the audience at home feel a lot more included. Yeah. Which I think is important if any of these televised events are going to survive or make money. Um, never mind so much like thinking, oh yeah, we're just going to cut all of the ceremony right down no maybe just actually make sure everyone feels welcome and that they can watch <laughs> um mm. yeah i don't know i think i think it kind of points to the prob the problem that is unique to the oscars because on the one hand you know you can kind of like rattle off a list of people like tiffany haddish is a great would I think be great and you and I both said you know why don't they just get her and Maya Rudolph to reprise their bit from the Oscars last year which was the funniest thing that happened in probably any award ceremony for years it's just two minutes of them just playing off of each other and having fun I think if you did that for two hours I'd be happy with that yeah Yeah, that'd be that'd be great but in some respects you know like the Oscar hosting gig is such a poison pill it's the sort of thing you really wouldn't wish on anyone that you actually like because it's so hard to actually to actually make it work because you're not just standing up there telling jokes and kind of keeping things moving as quickly as possible there's also all these big elaborate tributes to the nature of cinema that they want to put in there they want to do all of these kind of big elaborate things which even when you you know cut stuff out or try and move things along, just still end up with this thing that feels so like bloated and lurching, mm. and and that's why Tina Fey and Amy Poehler were so great hosting Golden Globes, and why John Mulaney and Nick Kroll have been so good hosting the Independent Spirit Awards for the years that they did it. Was that those shows are by their very nature so low stakes, and yeah. they are just. Uh, you know people sitting around in a room having a meal and drinks and so it's easier for you to actually do the job of comparing whereas when you yeah. watch the oscars you often will notice like oh the host kind of has the opening monologue and they'll do bits every so often but they'll also be just they'll vanish from the stage for like huge chunks of it and they lose really any control over 
the pace or anything that they might otherwise have in their role as MC. Mm-hmm. So it do- it definitely feels like whoever they get to pick, even if they pick the absolute perfect best person and they do a terrific job, there's still there's still limits to what you can actually do with that the entire setup of the Oscars, really. Yeah. So we'll go on to our main topic now for this week, and our topic is work and movies about jobs and you know kind of working in places this was uh, inspired by a viewing i had recently of the movie support the girls which is a comedy directed by andrew bujolski who uh, has taken a very interesting turn in his career from someone who i think grew out of the mumblecore scene and was known for things like computer chess which is an abrasive and very difficult to watch movie to doing stuff like uh, results his previous movie which is like a really charming romantic comedy and this which is a really i think really uh incredibly funny and sweet and heartfelt movie about a group of women working at a hooters style restaurant uh, although it's kind of, as as uh, Regina Hall's character repeatedly says, you know, they're trying to be more mainstream than a Hooters restaurant. And it's a very, very good movie about the notion uh, that you can love a job, but the job will never love you. Because yeah. Regina Hall is just a wonderful manager who everyone loves. The customers all love. The, uh, the, the people she works with... Uh, all think that she's absolutely wonderful and they'll do anything to help her and she'll do anything to help them. But at the end of the day, if she messes up, she's ultimately very, very disposable. And that is something that is, I think, not kind of really depicted often enough in culture because it's it's certainly something that I have experienced of in my own personal life, like you and I, both met because we worked at the showroom in Sheffield yeah, and did. I worked there for like three years and up until maybe the last month or so when I decided I was going to quit I really really loved working at the showroom I thought it was a lovely place to work I loved the people I would go into work most days feeling like really just kind of happy to hang out with people and talk about movies and just it was just a really really lovely place to work and had a really nice atmosphere although occasionally i would be very hungover and i would uh trade tickets for aspirin <laughs> which happened on, uh, on on one occasion i remember the recovery black market don't you worry <laughs> um, yeah and i think you once described my demeanor coming into work as very philip seymour hoffman-esque <laughs> because i think you just i think I, it was probably raining and i was just very kind of like hunched over and being like uh, please no i just want to go i just want to get to work um but for the most part it was a job that i i really genuinely did love working there and like the people i worked with there i think are still i would count as some of my favorite people in the world yeah but towards the end it really you know you do feel really unappreciated if you've worked in a place and you feel as if the management don't know what they're doing or that they don't care about the staff and yeah that was uh, that that was kind of one of the reasons i ended up having to leave and I, th- I think that idea is the thing that really struck me about Support the Girls, is it does really get across that idea of loving a place, but then ultimately realising that the place has no interest in you, ultimately. Which brings us very neatly into what I saw last night, which is more psychedelic to start, mm. shall we say? Um, yeah. So I saw... Sorry to bother you. 
which is Boots Riley's um, directorial debut, uh, starring Lakeith Stanfield, Tessa Thompson, Army Hammer, which I'd completely forgotten about. So seeing him pop up was um, got got quite the cackle out of me. It is really funny, right? Mm. I'm, I'm, it's it's a full twenty four hours since I've seen it, and I'm I'm still processing it. It is really funny. That's definitely something that I can fall on. It is a wider critique of work and capitalism as a whole. It is pretty mm. surreal. There is not too much I want to say for fear of ruining it, because I think the less you know when you go in, the wilder a ride you have. And I don't want to deny anyone a wild ride. But mm. it's interesting because it's one of the few films I've seen that does try and attempt to, um, instead of films that kind of look at this very personal experience of work as something that is part of your personal journey. So looking at things like, um, and, and typically American films made by white men, like Office Space is the, is the one that people point to a lot, uh, Waiting mm. as well. Um, oh, yeah. These are films that show these jobs as essentially transient. The people who do them are better than they think. They think they're better than job and, and we're led to believe that they are because they're charismatic um same with same with clerks kevin smith's mm. debut absolute classic you know write what you know and use what you have and i and i love clerks I, I really do for a film that is essentially just vignettes it's still incredibly cohesive and i think something that a lot of people can still relate to today um even though the general work market is a lot bleaker um yeah just a day where you're not really meant you're not even supposed to be there as uh, Dante mm -hmm. says frequently but Sorry to Bother You is one of the first films that I've seen that instead of just focusing on a very individual perspective of work is looking to criticise the system as a whole and to look at capitalism and to look at race I was very disappointed because I don't think it really taps into gender enough mm, yeah. if, if at all but it is still very entertaining. And I think what it does manage to do is it's so beautifully shot, like it's incredibly vivid and visceral. And it reminded me a lot of, um, and I don't know whether it's just because I watched it again, not all that long ago. So it's reasonably fresh in my memory for an episode that we did not that long ago. It's kind of a cousin to Heather's for me, mm. where it is this kind of Technicolor satire that seems acidic and acerbic and the surreal aspects actually heighten the reality. Like there's always real blood. There's actual real stakes, even though it's set in this slightly like over the top Alice in Wonderland style absurdity. Like there's flashes of stuff like Greg Araki and uh, Kurt Vonnegut. Mm. But I think, yeah, Heather's is the, the only thing that I can think that's anywhere near like it. But then there's a whole bunch of stuff that is not like anything else. So it's, it's a very singular vision. It's, I don't think it quite manages to succeed in terms of it sets up a very, I think, admirable and nuanced state of play. And then I mm -hmm. think it, it, it tries to it ends up being a little bit too neat about the solution to it. Uh, I think it does itself a disservice to to put it together together and, and put everything out that well and then just kind of sweep it aside <laughs> it didn't feel like uh, it felt a bit uneven I'd say towards mm. the end but I think what it also does really well is that you are in this kind of 
Lakeith Stanfield's character, who is brilliantly called Cassius Green, or Cassius Green, uh, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Oh, 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 there's... uh, (laughs) Wonder what that means. He uh, starts off as a telemarketer, and he is uh, desperate for a job. And there's just these really beautiful... um, mishmashes it goes it goes hard right because i think so Mm. much of um films about work do stick to this generally quite um realism sort of aesthetic um clerks you could say because it's black and white and because it it there is a heavy sort of comic book influence and that it does feel like several different um uh editions in a volume of these characters and there are some cartoony style moments an office space as well a little bit but there's nothing I haven't seen anything as like (laughs) full-blown maximalist (laughs) as sorry Mm. to bother you which is exciting and I think it does manage to bring in that really trippy sense of when of when you're bored and desperate all at once how Mm. how things can start to feel and just the actual intrusion of whenever uh Cassius makes a call and his desk yes. just drops into the situation, like the actual physical space that he's in with someone I thought was just really brilliant. And it's just nice to see after a long time of, I mean, mainly because of the recession of, of a, a lot of independent film having to strip back and not being able to necessarily play with these kinds of things to have a film that is more independent in mind and production and to just really fucking go for it. Mm. Yeah, I think the 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 little drop-ins, and I think the first half hour or forty-five minutes or so of that movie is is where it's its strongest for me because it really does For feel sure. as if it's its exaggerations of our reality are making its points strongest as it kind of as its scope broadens, it kind of loses its focus a little bit in in terms of its work as a uh, an incisive satire. But I do think that the bits of Cassius dropping in on people and and literally like his desk falling through the floor and like landing in their living room where like you know like he's talking to one guy he's on the toilet another one it's a couple having sex he's into he's interrupted uh yeah. which is uh who continue having sex whilst talking to him which is uh it was really really funny I think that is one of the most kind of like visually striking things i've seen in a movie in a long time it reminded me a lot of um, like michelle gondry who is name checked in the movie i think as well so uh, yes yes uh, i i, I at, at least he's, so he's definitely showing his working <laughs> but yeah I, I think it does also a really good job of something that a lot of movies about that that feature work you know often just as kind of as an aside as opposed to a setting what a lot of american movies that kind of mention people's jobs do is don't really give you any sense that that you know these that people are living hand to mouth and that they're at the breadline or whatever or or that they there are genuine stakes to them not having a job like before cassius gets the job telemarketing it it does a really good job establishing just how close to the edge that he is like yes. he's months overdue on his rent and he's only been allowed to do that because his uncle is the guy who owns the garage that he's living in uh, and that's like all he has is the garage of a house and his car bursts into flames and he doesn't really have the money to repair it and he is like just really really desperate to have a job because without a job uh you're kind of being thrown to the wolves and i i really appreciate a movie that 
conveys that. But then also yes. showing that that's not really the answer to a lot of things because once he does get the job, you see him like before the movie kind of goes off in uh, a kind of a different direction, uh, a more kind of corporate culture satire direction. Uh, you do see him like going out for drinking with friends and things like that and kind of thinking like, oh yeah, even when you do have a job, like your options are still fairly limited. <laughs> like you still really, you can just go out and get pissed and that's still, there's still not much of a, way out of your situation offered by a menial low-paying job even if it initially kind of gets you out of the dire straits that you were in yes and i think what's interesting is that um i love cassius's character so much and lakeith stanfield's incredible because he he keeps this Mm. incredibly real you, you believe he's a real person in amongst a cast of characters that kind of oscillate between being very believable and very ridiculous but he is also ambitious to the point of possibly being ruthless or at least being able to sort of ignore certain things for a while and i think there's actually a lot of leslie note in him weirdly Mm. um but that first scene where he has supposedly a trophy and employee of the month uh what would you even call that presentation board like a photo with a whole um, and it turns out that you know he's not he's not received these. He all of his references are fake, and mm-hmm. um, he uh, but he made them himself. And the interviewer just says, you know, I know all I need to know. You've got initiative, and you can read, and that's mm-hmm. the American dream, surely. <laughs> you know, and I like him because he is plucky. Like like you were saying, when he's drinking with friends, he kind of pushes himself into areas that he shouldn't be and then he's kind of pushed Mm. back out of them again and i think it's interesting that you know we were talking about black panther earlier and like that first half hour manages to absolutely kind of speed through so much and set up so much and i think Mm. it's similar with sorry to bother you because i think these are situations that come from such lived experience that you cannot you cannot render them as anything other than genuine and there is mm. this kind of beating heart to them. And then when stuff does start to kind of keep keep going, I think, like, again, with Black Panther, maybe the solution's a little bit simple. Or is it, it's a little bit harder, harder one. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, this kind of, I think Sorry to Bother You is still great because it's one of the first and, and well worth watching, even though I do think it's deeply flawed, because I think it is pretty much the only thing I've seen in a long time that puts an individual's success within a greater context because Mm. you know we look at a lot of other films that are about work work is not often the realm of the office work is um great artistic achievement so you look at Mm. things like you know for example a little film called phantom thread that i may or may not be completely obsessed with um Mm. fitz Caraldo again a huge one these kind of you know these great undertakings that are very painful and are often more often than not like a filmmaker's kind of Mary Sue mm-hmm. um, expression. So to actually see the real consequence of what an individual's success has, like it doesn't happen in a vacuum, I think is yes. And I look forward to seeing more films like. That. And I think it's just nice to see a film that has a social conscience but isn't actually like browbeating. I mean, I still haven't mm. watched I Daniel Blake. And I and I and I should kind of want to, 
but at the same time I don't I think it's it is a film where I don't think I'm going to be convinced of anything I don't already know and believe and it might just make me miserable Mm. (laughs) so just from a very selfish point of view I don't really want to see that kind of that kind of struggle which I mean it's partly down to I have I have a personal rule this is going on a slight tangent but I have a personal (laughs) rule called the blackfish rule where Mm. if there is a film that I'm already aware of what it's trying to tell me and I think it will just make me miserable basically if I won't learn anything new from it and Mm. I think it will just make me despair i.e blackfish uh I don't watch it (laughs) because I'd rather be refreshed for the fight than 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 just uh worrying at the kind of insurmount seeming insurmountability of it all but i don't know i still mm. i still think maybe i should give by daniel blake a go but you but this this is the thing with ken loach in terms of like the majority of his work um i think some of his best films are about people who who want to work who are trying to work and actually the system turns against them like you look at sweet 16 mm. um which is still inc- like martin constant my god like so incredible here on the mean streets of Glasgow, where I where I reside, you know, trying to better himself, and how different are the motivations and actions of a criminal <laughs> or someone who's trying to um, better themselves within a system? Is it is it just a matter of being of the wrong class or making the so called wrong decisions, even if you are in a very lucrative business? Um, mm. Oh, sorry. I've Gone all Marxist again, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, that's that's a fairly uh, appropriate response to talking about Sorry to Bother You, which is <laughs> probably the most uh, overtly communist movie to have been released in, you know, more than a thousand screens in America in in some time. Yeah, <laughs> so that's, that's an achievement uh, in itself, yeah. Uh, I don't know what the last one was, like Reds, I guess. But that was was about communists. It wasn't necessarily a communist (laughs) movie itself. Yeah, and also just one of the things, I think you're you're absolutely bang on when it comes to the Vonnegut comparison for Sorry to Bother You, particularly in terms of the Keith Stanfield's performance, because I think the thing about Vonnegut that I really love and you know that you see in his best works is that his protagonists do feel like very real people even when they're in supremely unreal situations and that i think is the the the, the heart of sorry to bother you is uh the keith does feel like uh, cassius green does feel like a real person who's being presented with utterly bizarre choices and circumstances and his reactions to them and his the way he kind of like thinks them through do feel like very human and tied yeah. to what feels like a real experience of someone who has very recently been in kind of very extreme poverty or on the edge of very extreme poverty yes. suddenly having the option to uh, escape that in a kind of like a very distinct and powerful way and get to live in a lovely kind of apartment <laughs> in yeah. uh, a nice part of town you know that his uh, artist girlfriend and he can kind of hang out in and everything and it's um, and it's earned like he does actually yes. work for it that's the thing he, mm. he, he puts in the time and the labor and affects a certain voice <laughs> um mm-hmm. and i think that kind of ruthlessness has i, th- I think so 
I'm starting to realise we've kind of got like two general sort of arms of films about work and offices in particular. There's one which is the absolute kind of like cutthroat nature of dog eat dog. And then you've got the more kind of like, oh, isn't it ridiculous? Don't you hate your boss? Um, Mm. And kind of, I'd say, sorry to bother you, definitely falls in the um, kind of cutthroat, even if it is in some ways it has those wonderful absurd moments like um mm. the amazing uh, diana debauchery oh it's like debauchery yeah. it's not uh played by <laughs> the um incredible kate Ballant, um mm. has to input a security code in a lift and it's such a simple yet incredibly effective bit of i want to say physical comedy <laughs> i don't mm-hmm. think anyone's hand has ever made me laugh so much <laughs> um, and, and there's also like the uh the voice from the lift as well who's kind of yes. like spouting out aphorisms and kind of trying to uh jazz up whoever it is who's using it uh which yeah. definitely feels like a very incisive bit of critique about the kind of empty go 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 kind of attitude of a lot of corporate america that bit did kind of remind me of that kind of thing oh yeah that's that's definitely kind of a thing you see in a lot of big american corporations as they try and uh do all this kind of like aspirational stuff that rings hollow when it comes to the actual meat of what it is that you do yeah particularly in the case of cashews green whose job eventually ends up with him uh selling very bad things to very bad people yes and also if you manage to pump someone full of themselves, if you manage to get someone so far up their own ass, you don't really need to care about them. And I think that's Mm. it. It's this very individualistic sort of territory. I think in terms of other like cutthroat work situations, there was a little bit, it reminded me a bit of uh, Glen Gary, Glen Ross. Yeah. Which is just so, again, really, really vicious and you know you forget that again they're all just sort of telemarketers and salesmen like mm. you, you if you look at the kind of promotional material and the and the posters from the time and the images it looks like a, a mafia or crime drama it's, it doesn't that's, look like you know oh another tough day at the office that's what i assumed it was for yeah. years like until i actually watched it i thought because it also i think because that came in like out in like 92 or 93 or something 92 it, yeah, it does feel as if they have taken the marketing material for Goodfellas and just kind of copied and pasted yeah. different actors' faces in there and just been like, this will sell, you know, just a lot of kind of character actor faces in kind of like dark shading and then just the words up there. And people think this is about crime. And it is technically about crime um, yeah. eventually. But for the most part, it's about these incredibly desperate men trapped in a small sweaty room trying to you know kind of make make whatever money they can with the kind of sword of damocles handling over them that whoever one of them fails is going to get cut from the uh, from the team mm. and that that as well really kind of gets to again again you know i just said the desperation of those kind of high intensity jobs even when the stakes in a global sense are very small. Like it doesn't really matter whether or not any of these guys get fired or not in kind of like a broader sense, but for them individually and for their families and everything, you know, it's a devastating thing for them to lose their jobs. And that that movie is one of the, the few that really does establish just how big the stakes are for those guys. Like Mm. they get fired. 
there's nothing for them left in the world, really. Yeah. Particularly for someone like Jack Lemmon, who's, you know, an older guy, probably not going to be able to find a job. Well, at least not a job, like on that sort of level uh, anytime soon. And is kind of staring at a, a kind of a fairly bleak situation if he if he loses his job. Yeah. And, the, and similar to uh, Cassius, you know, it, he's not really just working for himself. Like in Glengarry Glen Ross, it's, it's for his daughter. Mm. And in America, the work situation is, you know, if you don't have a job, what about health care? You know, it's so, it's yeah. so hinged on your survival and the fact that you have to give everything of yourself to receive everything for yourself um, mm. in terms of what you give. On a slightly lighter note, one of my uh, favourite shows from this year, uh, a very different picture of working for an estate agent is Staff Let's Flats, mm. which again falls into the slightly more absurd work office situation. Um, it's a wonderful character comedy on Channel 4 starring and created by Jamie Dimitriou and his real life sister Natasia Dimitriou is in it as well and I think it's hilarious and there's there's just all these lovely um moments particularly with the incredibly posh estate agents next door who do seem to be in a sort of more Glengarry Glen Ross coke blizzard fizzy water um, <laughs> <laughs> environment and it's also a really um great depiction of um sort of Greek Cypriot London life, which just hasn't, I think, ever been seen on TV before. And everyone's mm. got dreams in it. And they're all desperately trying to make something of themselves and things get in the way, mainly each other. But I think just that level of, of work, of working in a family business, of working for a family business, of having the rivalry with the neighbour next door, it's a, it's a really warm show for something that, has a lot of uh, people's failings in it it manages to not be mean which i think is quite an achievement and again has a very parks and rec sort of vibe to it in that way hmm. yeah that just reminded me it's a show that i think tonally couldn't be that far away but i know it's one that you you and i both talked about how much we love it but six feet under kind oh, of has that as well that's oh. a really good show about a, a family business and specifically about I guess the technicalities and the practicalities of the job that everyone involved is involved with. Like, I'm not saying you could watch all of Six Feet Under and walk away from it saying, okay, I could probably embalm someone. But <laughs> it, it does a good job of like informing you of what exactly that job entails. And even though like the store, the, the broader story of the show is more about the Fisher family and, and, and their emotional journeys and what they're going through. And of course the, um, stories of the the people they end up working on it still is a really good show about a very very specific job and a business that in america at least is is very uh under discussed you know the deaf industry is is booming uh always is always will be yeah. uh you know there's always a place for the local family undertakers but you know like i always found when when i watched that show through for the first time i found all of the stuff in it about the rivalry between the fisher family home and the kind of larger corporate entity that wants to buy them out yes really really fascinating and it's an exploration of the relationship between these smaller businesses and corporate american culture yeah and it's funny how um that's really strong that's like one of the main 
thrusts of the first kind of couple of, of series um mm. and then is essentially dropped like they win basically yeah. and but then the way that the way that then the kind of the, the trials and tribulations of the business continue is mainly kind of like internally it's when Rico sort of starts to step up to the plate and wants to become a partner yeah. and which is a much more intimate dynamic which is still fascinating and you're right that there is just the kind of how the worst time in someone's life could be your every day which is just an endlessly mm. rich premise and one of the best premises for a show ever you know someone dies every, at the top of every episode and their their death becomes entwined with the fish's lives like completely mm. something something else in terms of like um a film again that i didn't i what i was did not think was particularly successful well, was a couple actually two sort of uh films about journalism so spotlight mm-hmm. and the post yes. um i think are two interesting recent examples of the ins and outs of journalism um mm. spotlight i think um i spoke with a friend of mine who's invested journalist and he absolutely loves spotlight and i was explaining why i didn't find it that great and he said well you know the thing that i really liked was it just goes to show the ins and outs of everything you do to get a story together as a journalist and I thought actually yeah no fair enough it really did and I think I didn't realize how gripping a little bit about opening hours and bureaucracy would be but with Mark Ruffalo literally being like if I don't get this one (laughs) paper that's in the vaults of (laughs) the you know the the town the town records then this story is you know is dead in the water I think is great and kind of seeing how they work together but then that was kind of my issue as a viewer I don't think they're a particularly well-formed ensemble of people Mm. I think the actual I wanted the writing to be there a bit more but then the scenes where they interview the survivors of this widespread abuse are absolutely electric and you do get a sense of how important and, and imbued with something so sensitive and how they go on to handle that and then the post as well which which again is i think again it's this kind of slightly sort of reaching for a for a feminist angle which (laughs) i don't Mm. think it quite manages you know meryl streep coming into her own as the sort of heiress but she actually makes an editorial stand but then that's a film that i found incredibly dull to begin with and then became I, I, I really got into it when the stakes actually, when stuff actually started to happen, funnily enough. Mm, um, yeah. But again, two two very different films showing, again, like the way the way that you represent sort of journalism and newsrooms in particular as well is really interesting because I think like the way that films um, project them are generally quite dramatic. But then actually the Post and, and Spotlight do manage to show quite a bit of, the actual legwork <laughs> and, yeah. and endless typing. So I think even though I'm not crazy about them as films, I think both of them managed to, I think, depict journalism in quite a, in a reasonably accurate way. Mm, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think they both, 
do a really good job of depicting it as a very important thing in society whilst not themselves feeling that self-important, I don't think. Mm. Like, I think there are parts of the post that are just kind of, like, fairly kind of lively and comedic. And very clearly, the result, seemingly, of the movie kind of being slapped together fairly quickly. Like, I think it was it went from not being a project at all to being finished and released in like seven months or something because Steven Spielberg just had a gap in his schedule and he wanted to do something. Yeah, so he he made it. And I think that prevents it from being quite so over-considered and over-mannered as it could have been. And Spotlight, I think, because Thomas McCarthy is such a restrained filmmaker in some ways, like all of his movies are kind of warm but removed at the same time in a weird way that spotlight despite being a movie that won best picture which is still weird like that it feels like it didn't win that year because like it wasn't the film anyone was expecting to win like it was all down to the revenant everyone thought the revenant was going to win but it doesn't feel quite so self-important as i think a lot of movies about journalism can do like there was a movie that came out i think it may even have come out in the same year as Spotlight called Truth, which was all about the mm. scandal in the like mid two thousands when CBS um, published this, a story about George W. Bush's, I think, about his wartime service, which turned out to have been based on like not particularly well scrutinized sourcing, and it became kind of like a real kind of big scandal. Which is a really bad movie, and it's really really self-regarding in that respect and i that that's kind of the thing i like about the post and spotlight is even mm. though they're both movies about fairly serious important subjects they don't necessarily feel like self-important movies yeah uh, and and why the best movie ever about journalism is broadcast news which is a movie that is really great in its depiction of journalism as a thing that it can be like really exciting to work in and you, that that's a movie in terms of work where a big part of it is showing someone in the form of Holly Hunter who is amazingly good at the, her job and loves it to the point of it possibly ruining her life, but does genuinely love the thing that she does. And I think that is something that can be like a really life-affirming thing to see, even if it's maybe, you know, someone caring too much about the job that they do it can still be really really heartwarming to see someone do a job and not only do it well but clearly find something deeply fulfilling in it yeah completely and speaking of of jobs that are so fulfilling but in a in a different way looping back to one of our one of our old favorites uh crazy ex-girlfriend um it's interesting Mm. how in this season rebecca is starting to understand what actually makes her happy um Mm. in terms of her occupation and that actually running a pretzel franchise whilst giving free legal aid at a prison turns out makes her a lot happier than this very driven idea of success that was kind of formed for her by her mother Um, and I think that's a really beautiful moment in that episode as well where all the different mothers from different kind of backgrounds and cultures (laughs) talk about their (laughs) sacrifice (laughs) in order for their children to do well but yeah, that's that's nice to see. Um, I think um, to some extent as well, a quiet passion. Um, mm. sort, of, sort of looking yeah. at, um, a, again, we're kind of moving into creative work. It's it's harder to find 
um, people who were who were genuinely satisfied with their with their day to day. And I realise it's taken me um, a horrifically long time to actually bring up uh, my my favourite women kicking back in the office film nine to five. Yeah, I was, I was wondering when we were going to get to it because I was all the while thinking about it. It was, you know, that joke in extras where Les Dennis, I think, is trying to get them to name a a funny black British comedian. Yes. And no, no one says Lenny Henry. Yeah. But there's a giant picture of Lenny Henry on the wall behind him. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of thought, you know, this how is... can we be talking this long without mentioning to five? Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I, I got I got so carried away with Sorry to Bother You in mm. that I do think, you know, what's lacking in sort of gender criticism there is absolutely at the forefront of 9 to 5, which I love. And the fact mm. that I watched 9 to 5 for the first time, I want to say... Oh, eight or nine years ago, as part of a um, feminist reading uh, collective um, at right. the University of Sheffield. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a film night, which was 95. And I remember then just being so shocked at how radical it was. I mean, this is a film made in 1980. Mm-hmm. And you know, some of the things that they're discussing in terms of like, what about flexible working hours? The fact that they even just decide to um, get their own back on their boss because they're all high as fuck is <laughs> <laughs> quite, quite nice and probably a real point of a hard relate for the second mm. wave of, of conscious raising feminists in, in sort of the 70s. And again, that is a film that does it with so much humour. I mean, it is, it is I, th- I think the thing is, it is quite pantomime-esque like their their boss is is horrific like there's yeah. like there's absolutely no saving grace to him whatsoever um and they're all really plucky and and it is kind of ridiculous in terms of how they go about how they end up uh at the end of the film but i do think that it gets the balance right in that it is a revenge fantasy but then mm. the actual sort of policies they put forward to make the office better are ones that came out of exactly those kinds of discussions in feminist discourse. But that's not where the film lies. We don't want the film is not about here's how we make things better. It's it's a it's a revenge fantasy. It's it's death wish with peroxide mm. blonde hair. And I and I kind of I kind of love it for that. Yeah, I was just you mentioning that it came out in 1980 just made me think, oh, yeah, I guess it kind of was, I, I guess it almost points to a alternate reality of like, oh, if Carter had won re-election in 1980 or whatever, or if Reagan hadn't won the primary and someone else had become the Republican president, maybe things would have been different in terms of gender and the that kind of dynamic in the workplace maybe things would have progressed a bit more but the fact that that movie came out the same year that kind of reagan swept in and you got this you know conservative revolution that really turned the clock back in a lot of ways in america after you know the the turbulence of the 1970s makes me think that why that movie stands out in such a major way because it was kind of without realizing it because it was kind of the broadly accessible and acceptable face of a kind of radicalism that people maybe didn't realize was about to get snuffed out in culture in a major yeah. way yeah which is kind of sad <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> even though the movie is still great but yeah that that maybe points to why it feels so weirdly out of place that 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 strain of kind of filmmaking didn't really continue in like mainstream stuff like if you want to look at american movies that advanced radical ideas that time you have to look in like lower budget genre stuff like you have to look at i don't know society or something which is not a movie about work but is a <laughs> is a very um broad and hugely enjoyable and gross <laughs> satire of american consumerism yeah. uh, from a marxist perspective which i think everyone should watch before we uh, finish this main topic i just wanted to call out one movie that is not about work in general but does have one specific element of it that i really like because it's it kind of touches on an idea that I don't think is explored often enough. There's a movie from a couple of years ago called Life Partners by a filmmaker called Susanna Fogel, starring Gillian Jacobs and Leighton Meester. And uh, they play best friends who kind of drift apart when Gillian Jacobs becomes involved with a kind of new man in her life and Leighton Meester, who's an artist, a gay artist who... Uh, goes on dates with people like Kate McKinnon, which is an ace part of the movie that's really funny. But she is kind of like an artist who has a day job that she really, really hates. She's like a secretary at a, a um, I think at a lawyer's office or something. It's awesome. She's, she basically has a powerless role in a big company and she hates her job and she's very vocal about the fact that she hates this job, but she only has it because it allows her to kind of kind of mess around with her art kind of separately uh, but also the job is so is just demanding enough on her time that she can't really commit to doing the art as much as she would like so she's kind of in this this kind of like limbo between the two things she wants to do but one of the things that happens in the movie is that she makes a mistake which it very clearly and very early uh, in it becomes apparent that she is going to be fired for it but it takes a little while so she kind of has to sit with this knowledge that she's messed up in a way that is where the damage is irreversible and what i really like about that movie is in that moment it really gets at this idea of having a job that you hate but that you that you are more afraid of losing it <laughs> than yeah. of going into work every day um which is not a, a a idea that i think is kind of really pointed to enough uh in culture like the only thing that i think if if for example like the office the final se uh, scene of the second series of the office oh, was tim God. kind of breaking down when he's going to be fired instead of brent that'd be kind of like the closest you would get of someone just like really hating this job but also uh hating it like uh also kind of needing it in some way yeah for um, sure actually that uh reminds me of another great kind of um, arc about work and Gillian Jacobs which is in love with with Mickey mm. and I actually think one of the things that really endeared me to love towards the end was this kind of it was a long playing out for us as an audience to watch but mm -hmm. the actual events within love are meant to happen over something like four months it's, it's actually quite yeah. quick but what's lovely is seeing Mickey kind of actually giving herself and her life the best shot she can by going with her sobriety and working really hard on that, but then also kind of through her job with her horrific boss, Brett Gelman, um, <laughs> she actually manages to uh, rise her way up with uh, a Paula Pell is in her office as well, which is just amazing. There's some really beautiful um, small parts in, in love. Um, mm. And 
how she manages to kind of move from being this sort of like assistant to actually being a producer and having some power, but also having an empathy that she manages to uh, create a great show and has a good eye for what's there. And I think that's one of the the better um, work arcs, I think, because it's not the only thing that Mickey has going on, but it's definitely a really tangible way of seeing how she gets better in herself. It's not like work saves her, but it is something that improves once she starts taking her own her own sense of self seriously like that that is a reward that comes to her and i think that's a really lovely thing to watch mm, absolutely so we end this episode as we end all our episodes with shot verse shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think that you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week sally forever i know a lot of people are talking about it anyway it's not like it's a particularly obscure recommendation and i do think it is for julia davis purists of which I am mm-hmm. one. Like, I adore her. I'm a super fan. I watched Nighty Night when it first came out on BBC Three when it used to be a terrestrial channel, kids. Wow. Come sit on the porch with Grandma yet again. <laughs> um, and it was between that and pulling by Sharon Horgan and Monkey Dust, oh. the, the gloriously um, sickening um, animation, that mm. I think just really kind of forged my taste in British humour of like of then obviously I'd grown up with like various different things but that felt like oh this is now and this in that way that you feel that something that happens as you're on the cusp of really starting to discover stuff that somehow it becomes yours or it kind of implants mm-hmm. itself in you in a way and Nighty Night was absolutely that and I've just followed Julia Davis throughout her career and I absolutely love her and I think uh, it was you Ed actually who sent me an article um, about her an interview with her mm in the run-up to this yeah. and Sally Forever is uh, on Sky as Julia Davis has been making stuff with Sky for the past few years now and it is very much again her her kind of themes that she returns to again and again where she seems to play this kind of totally delusional self-obsessed narcissistic psychopathic hypersexual uh, temptress who is kind of the Nietzschean idea of the ubermensch, but with dark roots and, and bleach blonde <laughs> hair and a, and a penchant for very tight and all revealing clothes. Um, mm-hmm. And Sally Forever is, has one of the best performances of the year, in my opinion, by Catherine Shepard. Like she's absolutely remarkable as Sally, someone who is learning to move from being passive to being active and trying to take control of their life and be in touch with their desires and what they want but it's such an internal she's got these wonderful ticks and reveals and yet she manages to kind of suppress everything at once i think it's genuinely one of the best performances um, of the year um and it's a lovely way of seeing julia davis kind of cast her own partner julian barrett in a romantic lead um and he manages to be incredibly funny awkward and really quite touching as well i mean it's so grotesque like gleefully and i kind of love that like basically julia davis's world is everything is grotesque it's just on a level from being banal to being essentially fulfilling to being but there is love there is love that exists in that world as well so there is something redemptive but i think part of it is like oh my god how can you actually show that 
on TV, <laughs> sort, <laughs> sort of watching. And then part of it is just wondering what the hell is going to happen. And you do get invested and you do care. I don't think it's as good as camping, which I think is one of the best things she's ever, like, I think it's probably the best thing Julia Davis has ever done, uh, where she kind of leans a bit more full hill into kind of the horror. Because I feel like she's very, I mean, she work, she works with Mark Gatiss a lot, but I feel like she's mm. kind of always on the brink of going full League of Gentlemen. Like she's she's right. very influenced by those kind of like erotic thrillers of the 80s. And, but every everything is just on the turn of, falling apart and guts and shit and piss and everything come everywhere. Mm. So I think it's it's very much her and that's why I like it. But even I could understand why people may not be crazy about it. But I'm just gonna recommend mm. it anyway. Because because why not, Ed? Why not? Exactly. I'm gonna recommend a movie that I saw just today Weirdly, it was showing at a theatre near where my parents live, despite it being not a movie that would really seem to appeal to uh, the people in kind of like rural Florida, uh, which turned out to be the case because I was the only person in the cinema, um, which was great for me, but uh, probably not for the movie's finance, the, the, the theatre's uh, finances. Uh, it's a movie called Mirai, which is a, a Japanese animated movie directed by Mamoru Hosada, who previously directed things like The Girl Who Left Through Time, Wolf Children, and uh, Summer Wars. And it was also, in keeping with our discussion today, it was nominated for Golden Globe for Best Animated Feature today, uh, or earlier in the week. And it is a thoroughly lovely movie about a young boy who is, I think, about three or four years old in the movie. It's never, I don't think it's ever said, but certainly like a young child whose parents bring home his new baby sister and it's all about him adjusting to the new dynamic in the family of there being a new person in his life who has is competing for his parents affection and the way in which that conflict is acted out is every time he has a particularly strong emotional reaction to the things happening in his life he encounters different people from his family through time uh beginning with his sister as a teenage girl who kind of like shows up and helps him with kind of a task and then later on when he's learning to ride his bike he encounters his great-grandfather who uh, had recently died but he encounters him as a young man who kind of teaches him how to overcome his fears of trying new things and he meets his mother when she was his age and kind of establishes a rapport with her but then also sees that you know oh everyone's kind of a little shit to their parents when they're young <laughs> uh and what's really nice about it is one you that the, there are those little moments and they're beautifully animated and the transitions between different times and realms of reality are gorgeously animated but it's a very it has a very keen understanding i think of child psychology which is that every time he encounters and has one of these kind of like experiences and has these lessons in a lesser movie or a more straightforward movie you think oh this will of course incrementally lead to him becoming a better person but in fact what then happens is the next kind of episode of the movie is him continually to be awful to his parents because he hasn't reached the level of emotional maturity where these lessons are going to stick yet he still doesn't quite understand why they pay attention to the baby and not him and that to me struck me as incredibly uh, 
uh, observant and insightful and true uh, in its kind of like, you know, in, in the depiction of sibling relationships and the emotional development of a child. And it also has a real kind of like ambition to it, particularly in the final kind of chapters of the movie. Um, eventually it kind of reaches the point where it's pondering the notion that each and every one of us exists because of a million decisions made by thousands of people in the past, many of whom were dead long before we were born. <laughs> and uh, it illustrates that in a way which is really stunning. And there's like this whole like 20 minute sequence at the end of the movie where uh, where the young boy and his sister are traveling through all of these different lives and seeing like all of the things that their relatives have done over the years. And it does it in this way, which makes this kind of really big, bold, profound point about the human existence, which is also uh, just like so easily graspable because of the visual component to it. And I think it's a really, really stunning movie. I think it's uh, something that people should seek out if you get the chance. If you happen to be a completely empty cinema in the middle of nowhere, Florida, then go seek it out. But I'm sure it'll also be more widely available on DVD since it has uh, awards buzz behind it. But even if it didn't, people should go see it because it's an absolutely brilliant piece of work. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places. Leave us a review, rate us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me, my little chilly babies. (laughs) 